You are listening to What in the World, recorded and broadcasted at WERALP Arlington, Virginia. You can listen to the show online at WERA.FM or on Mixcloud.com. Just type in the phrase What in the World, and we're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash what in the world podcast. So I'm so happy today. We've got Asha Castleberry in the building. Uh, Asha is a professor at Fordham University where she teaches U.S. foreign policy as well as U.N. nation or United Nations um, peace operations program. Um, has like my life. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. She she has my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was an election observer mm-hmm. um, for the elections in El Salvador back in 2009. Yes. She um, is a Hampton grad. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Shout out to Hampton. I don't know if H-U. that's the real HU. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm not gonna get I'm not gonna get involved in that beef. But she's a Hampton grad. She's also a SIPA, a Columbia University. Ooh grad as well so a shout out to the Ivy League yes so you've got it like covered you've got everything covered <laughs> Thank you. the Ivy League and the HBCU mm-hmm. um, she's also had a chance to study abroad in China yes um, and had I'm looking forward to actually hearing hearing that how that was and mm-hmm. she's also um, a 2015 Route 100 top African American rising leader yes and mm-hmm. on top of all that she's a New Yorker yeah she's from the same area that hails P. Diddy? Yes. Mary J. Blige? Yes. Is Method Man from up there? No, he's. I think he's from Staten he's Island. He's from Staten Island, too. Yes. Okay, yes. so so Westchester's in yes. the building. DMX. DMX. Yes. DMX. You're, not as, you're not as crazy as Arnold. Maybe I don't know. We'll see. I don't think you're quite as crazy. But thank you for, for coming and blessing us with your, with your presence this evening, oh, Asha. you're welcome. Looking forward to a great conversation mm-hmm. about mi- the Middle East and mm-hmm. what in the world is going on there. So before we jump into the meaty, Mm -hmm. Um, the goodness of all of this, um, not that your background isn't good, but (laughs) how did you get to foreign policy? How did you get to this to to be so awesome in all these places? What in your childhood made you want to become, you know, part of this space? Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited about your new show. This is really awesome. Um, um, Well, I will tell you the way I first was introduced uh, to like foreign policy. um, I had a talent, um, you know, that I did not really know too much about as far as that I knew was a talent. Um, When I was in Middle school and high school, I was really, really good at world affairs. Uh, I loved reading about it. I had really good grades in it. I took some of the honors programs, and I also took, um, uh, excuse me, honors courses as well as the um, AP courses as well. So I really, really excelled in that area. But I didn't know that it would had, it you know, was associated with foreign affairs. So um, once I went to Hampton University. Um, I found out during my junior year, you know, I want to learn about what's going on around the world and uh, build on my perspective or my experiences. Um, and at that time, I was in the ROTC program as well. So instead, I, I forgot to mention that you did I say you were an army, that you were an army veteran? And, and did I mention that? I don't know if I, I mentioned no, that. No, no, I want to make no. sure <laughs> I shouted that out that you are an army vet and served um, in Iraq. And yes. We, of course, Thank you for your service, and I'm so glad that. We oh, can you're have welcome. You, you Absolutely. Know, speaking about your experience, so thank sorry, you. Sorry, you <laughs> Oh, no problem. So um, I was definitely interested in uh, learning about um, uh, pretty much the Southeast Asia and studied abroad in China. I wanted to try something different. Since after I returned back from China, my life has changed. That's what made me want to get into foreign policy because of the observation that I pretty much, um, pretty much build on in China, where I saw a lot of uh, foreign businesses that were actually in Shanghai doing business, working with the local Chinese. Um, just really amazing, and, and just also that Shanghai was looking like the next New York City. <laughs> so I was like, wow, this the world is really, really rapidly changing, and I want to learn more about not just China, but the rest of the world and how it impacts our foreign policy. And so that happened during my junior year. And then, so that was the first experience. And my second experience um, was during, um, after I got commissioned in the military, I had the opportunity uh, to deploy to a peacekeeping exercise in 
um, in uh, Central America and Nicaragua. Uh, so I learned about how peacekeeping operations worked, and um, I did a lot of work on Resolution 1325, which is advancing women in peacekeeping operations. So those were the two big uh, reasons why I wanted to get into foreign policy. Do you have a, a history of, uh, does your family have a, a military background, like were any of your parents at all or rel- other relatives Yes, my uh, first uncle, he was in the Navy, as well as my grandfather, he served in the Navy as well. And so you sort of, did you feel like this was the natural next step or do you feel like still it was like that natural sort of attraction to the world brought you there? Was it maybe a mix of both? That's a very interesting question because going back to uh, that I'm from New York, I actually experienced 9-11 mm. in, tw- in 12th grade. I remember when the whole thing happened and uh, I remember all these helicopters stuff going down into the city and everybody was stuck on the train. It really impacted me. So by the time I um, joined college, um, I wanted to join one reason because of that and um, to serve my country. And also, I just like to work out. <laughs> yeah. I was a really good runner. And um, Were you an athlete? Uh, no, not really. No. Okay. But um, but my the recruiter at the ROTC program, he was actually interested in me because he knew I could run. So I said, <laughs> okay, I'll try it out. And, and that's how that all happened. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's great. I, um, I, I respect folks who have that military legacy. I think it's a Thank great you. thing. And, and it's I, I can see you, the little girl in the classroom, waving your hand like, I know the capital of Uzbekistan. Yeah. I do. I'm a New Yorker, but I know. I know. So let, let, let's let's segue into something um, for our guests here. So the topic, as I mentioned, is America's approach to the Middle East and, and national security and just how, how we've gotten to the point where we are today. And for our listeners, we are going to just provide a framework a basic understanding of concepts like democracy and how we define democracy. Um, Because I think that that's going to help us sort of understand why we're out there in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So we're also going to use your lens, right? Your experiences on the ground Mm -hmm. as examples um, to help illustrate some of the concepts and and your time in in Latin America. So um, I'm going to first start with the definition of um, democracy. So uh, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's essentially uh, a government that's elected by the people uh, for the people. And democracies have certain characteristics to them that embody certain things around freedom, um, certain rights, uh, free free and fair elections, um, values around intolerance, et cetera, et cetera. So, Asha, is there anything else you'd like to add about the idea of democracy and and how how we define it? Yes, uh, I would definitely like to underscore equality uh, and because of Equality is so important because it best represents our country. Um, and when it comes to a democratic system, if a majority of our, our, our government only represents one set of people, but the rest of the country does not look like it, then you have a problem there. Mm-hmm. So um, achieving equality or some sort of gender balance or, uh, yes, ethnic representation, I think is very, very important, especially as you're as the country is changing over time, rapidly changing in terms of ethnicity, race, gender. So that's very, very important when it comes to representation because when it comes to policy decisions, those people need to be in place to represent your interests. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so here in the United States, you know, we've been through a lot as a since the founding of the country w- with things like the right to vote for women. That, that was an important Milestone, and we've had things like the civil rights era that provided more opportunities for Af- African Americans to to become a part of this 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 experiment. They call it this grand experiment. Um, but there are other forms um, of governing, right? There, we won't get into all of the differences, but. I think many Americans are familiar with the idea, for example, of communism and socialism. And, you know, there are monarchies. There Mm -hmm. there are all of these different ways of governing. But here in the United States, we're, for the most part, a a democracy. Yes. (laughs) Right now, we're a democracy. (laughs) In future episodes, we'll talk about the differences. Um, So since World War One, we America's power around the world has significantly shifted and I think most people would agree that we've become a major superpower after after the First World War. Um, and with this has come this expectation that we would be the police of the world. Um, we are the leaders, quote unquote, of the free world. Um, and 
I want to just summarize. Well, first, before I, I get into the the piece I wanted to talk about, um, could you just share, uh, you know, your thoughts on America's role in the world as a leader of the free world? Like, do you think that being the police of the world or the leader, quote unquote, on the of the free world, do you think that does us good or bad? Or is what what is what is the value in that? Has it been harmful for us to be the leader mm-hmm. of the free world, quote unquote, the leader of the free world? Oh, that's a very good question because it can go both ways. Um, it, and that definitely became a big discussion from the last elections because you've had a sense of growing um, concerns about us being the leaders of the free world. I mean, le- uh, the international police, mm-hmm. um, because what came along with that was that we're meddling too much mm-hmm. into other people's other countries' affairs, which is a legitimate um, uh, a legitimate concern. Um, and we have seen it where when we are sometimes are the police, we do make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes those mistakes happen because we fail to understand what is going on in that country and mm-hmm. making those right decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw that with Iraq. Iraq is a perfect example uh, in 2003 where we've made a bad decision mm-hmm. going into that country to try to fix it, but it became a little bit counterproductive. So that's one good example. And then you also pay, we also use a lot of our tax dollars going into other countries and trying to secure our interests, but we tend to fail at it. But the good side, a good thing about it is that a lot of these countries look up to United States when they need help. They look up to us. And that is to our advantage because we best we best represent the values of these countries at times. And um, when they come to help, we we it's like in our inherent value to kind of work with them. Right. Um, like, for instance, uh, if you have a situation where uh, there's a natural disaster in a country and a lot of people are lacking aid. Well, would you, how would you feel if the United States said, no, I'm not providing mm-hmm. aid? We wouldn't feel right because it's in our value to help another country. So you, I was really exposed to this when um, I actually was in the Middle East where I saw that so many countries were coming to us for leadership. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not just necessarily we want to use your money. It's just we need some guidance. Mm-hmm. And that's a great way to um, kind of not necessarily imposed, but to pass on some of those democratic values on how to get things done. Mm. So that helps us at the end as far as getting business done globally where we can pass along those democratic values to influence their decisions. Right. But um, you may hear a lot that, oh, the United States messed up here, 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 there. But at the end of the day, a lot of these countries come to us for help and it's been to our advantage. I want to actually go Mm. back to something that's related to this point that you made, but also to your personal experience on the ground. So, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you are you were an army vet or mm-hmm. an army soldier. Mm-hmm. You were like you said you were on the ground mm-hmm. and you were a woman of color. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how you were received by the the community, the local um, uh, staff that you were working with there, the community members, the local leaders? Um, anything you know interesting happened while you were there, and how did being a woman of color on the ground shape your experience as a, as a soldier? Oh wow! So I always receive this um, <laughs> this question because I think United States. Um, a lot of people think they're kind of. It's like my work there is like unthinkable. They're like, no way, you didn't do that, right? So um, when I first was assigned to work uh, in the Millies, I had to work with one of our Gulf allies um, on a daily basis on just military operations, military exercises, bilateral security agreements. So it required me to um, work at a Ministry of Defense with their counterparts on a daily basis. And when I was first assigned uh, to do this, I thought I was going to be a liability because of all the rumors you hear you hear about women not be able to do nothing in the Middle East. They're mm. like treated like second-class citizens. And to, to be honest with you, to a certain extent, that is true. But that's also here in a way as well, right. too. So I came into the assignment as, oh, I'm going to be a liability. But then I found out I ended up being an asset. Um Working with a lot of uh, my counterparts in the Middle East, I learned that uh, as a woman and a woman of color, there was two things that were great 
that helped me as far as military diplomacy. One, I didn't realize my name (laughs) meant a lot to them because it's Aisha. Aisha is uh, Prophet Muhammad's wife name. (laughs) So um, that was a big deal. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. And I mean, my name was everywhere. Their their wives, their daughters, they were Aisha. Yeah, so that was a really big deal. Then also um, just doing a lot of work with them. Um, I didn't come in with this American exceptionalism attitude like you're going to do this. I, we, we listened to each other. We we exchanged ideas. We and that's how we were able to come to an agreement. Mm. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm I'm going to tell you what to do. It was more like right. uh, we respect each other. We respect each other's interests. How can we bridge them? And and I really did. A, I was really guided by that based on President Obama's uh, national security strategy when he when he came out with that in two thousand I think nine or ten. He said we are going to come into the global community as a way to work together to respect one another. That's the best method of bridging our interests and and we we better lead when we're like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's something. Thing we talked about with Ambassador Brigitte for the first for the first episode where we talked about the difference between realism and and, and liberal liberalism is yes. your approach right mm-hmm. to how you deal with certain situations you can go in there and force people and say this is the way it's going to be and assume that people are out to get you or you can use sort of what you're talking about which is your your biggest assets your people um, to to bring in people into the conversation and and bridge differences and 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 really show people that you're not there to you know annihilate them a bully right a bully them and and so going back to you know the uh, you mentioned that the United States and all the people look up to us and and it's beautiful that they can look at our military mm-hmm. and see women mm-hmm. see people of color um see people who are muslim who mm-hmm. are catholic who are jewish who are from wherever that's the i think one of the strengths right. of our of our military and and frankly i think our democracy and uh so i can totally understand what you're saying where people come to us cuz they're like they represent in a lot of ways, what they speak. You right. Know, we're not just, we're not perfect. Right. But they try at least. And, and you know, we can actually see physical evidence. Right. Of, of that. Right. So um, going again to um, democracy, how does America go about determining which areas of the world <laughs> we're going to engage with militarily, diplomatically or some other way you mentioned that you know we go we went we go to the middle east and you know we try to work with the people there but you know frankly we're not in a lot of places (laughs) (laughs) i mean talk about that like how do we how do we decide as a nation or how do our leaders decide where to to spend our resources it's based on our economic and security interests um, and we kind of saw that a little bit in the travel ban. Um, when the travel ban was issued, I'm not sure if you recognize it, but uh, Saudi Arabia was not on the list. Well, that was a concern because uh, with regards to tra- the travel ban, the big concern was we're not going to allow uh, people to come to this country where within that country they have um, a high level of terrorists, right? That want to come over here and you know bomb us, right? Right. Well, um, extremism and um, terror terrorism sponsorship in Saudi is a big concern. Mm. But why aren't we banning one from Saudi? Is because of our economic interests and some of our security interests, to be quite frank. But definitely our economic interests. So uh, we definitely noticed that, and also Qatar as well. We didn't ban the Qataris to come over here, and mm. they're right now a big concern. <laughs> but when you look at Cuba. Right. Uh, recently, our relationship was downgraded because based on what President Trump said, oh, there uh, we are very concerned with the human rights violations in Cuba. Well, if you want to compare Cuba and Saudi, uh, there's they got, you know, there's some concerns on both ways. So a lot of our allies have concerns when it comes to human rights issues. But why are you using that to Cuba? Well, it's more because of in, in, in the administration's eyes, political reasons and in somewhat security but you know it's been counterproductive that we've had close relationships with Cuba in my own opinion but um they in the, administra- the administration right now they don't really see the value of too much like they do see in Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. so 
that's when you can see the difference between the two, uh, who we want to engage with and who we mm-hmm. don't want to engage with. And we clearly don't see as uh, right now uh, with the administration, they don't see Cuba as a, a, a big priority. A big priority, right. It's mm-hmm. not like Saudi Arabia where maybe we have like oil interests or we have mm-hmm. businesses who trade there. You know, right now Cuba is just not, they're not as embedded in our in our economic fabric right. as, 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 a, as a Saudi Arabia. Right. But there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of potential. Right. Absolutely. Right. There's a lot, a lot of U.S. businesses want to flock there. Absolutely. To expand on their economic interests. But right now in the administration, they don't really see the need. You right. Know? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I want to make sure I frame up for everybody is this article um, by Steve Walton, Foreign Policy. Uh, the article is titled, Why is America so bad? At promoting democracy in other countries, he basically says that America is bad be- at doing this because constitutions and elections aren't enough. So we go into another country and we try to just get them to set up a constitution, get an election going, and we think everything's all right. But there are other factors like the social status, mm. the cultural dynamics, the economic systems mm. um, that need to be addressed before you can just sort of randomly have elections. You were in um, El Salvador mm-hmm. and observed that election. <laughs> <laughs> Describe that experience. And did you do you sort of see did you sort of see our role in that as as beneficial to that process or mm-hmm. or was it a hindrance to what they were trying to do in El Salvador? I actually saw it where it was a ben- it was beneficial. Um, it was in 2009. Um, it was very, very historic because uh, for the first time, uh, the FMN, FMLN party had a good chance of beating the Arena Party, which is a left wing. And before, but actually, but let me step back for one second. A lot mm-hmm. of people may not actually know what happened in El Salvador mm-hmm. and why they ne- needed election overseers. So, can you just give like a quick overview of the situation in El Salvador and why you were there even to begin with to observe their elections? Right. Um, well, I was. I think it was in eighties and or in the nineties. There was a big genocide that. I would say it would look like a genocide to me. Well, 900,000 people were actually killed over uh, many reasons, guerrilla warfare, et cetera, et cetera, because there were some political concerns. And um, the rebel groups um, or the guerrilla warfare uh, fighters actually represented the FMLN party, and they were pretty much marginalized for many years. And the arena party, which is more like the right wing, they pretty much controlled the system for quite some time. Um, So over the years, especially um, in 2009, that's when they actually looked like they had a good opportunity to actually win back some of Mm -hmm. the some of the government representation there, especially the presidency. So you had a just a bad history of just like um, just bad violence and and, and and political instability, economic issues, especially when it came to um, jobs and also religious freedom, excuse mm-hmm. me. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we had so that was just a just destabilized the country overall. Mm-hmm. And I think it actually impacted um President uh, Bush Sr.'s um, uh, presidency when he was trying to run again. So there was just a lot of different issues going on. And then, um, so 2009 was very, very historic because it looked like, again, the left party couldn't win, and they did win. And one reason why that looked like they couldn't win, not just because domestically they saw that there was a possibility of getting these people out to vote, but also they were inspired by President Obama's uh, mm. presidency. It's so funny because when they won that night, uh, you can hear around the streets, si se puede, si se puede, si se puede. That's awesome. Yes, that's yes we can, yes, <laughs> yes we, we can. can. I'm like, wow. And I, I I was just so amazed to see that. So going into the elections, um, I was there as an election observer, and I thought that was very interesting because – I learned how important democracy is. Uh, and, you know, it's it's not clean. It can be messy, but you should not take it for granted. Because uh, when what I was observing um, was very interesting when it came to voting, for, for one, uh, where some of the people in the country did not have good a good voting system. They were voting in, um, in, in cardboards. They didn't have good curtains. Mm-hmm. The voter identification system was really old. Uh, so you, you saw a lot of those problems. And then you all 
also saw um, some sort of concern with corruption, trying mm. to pay people mm. to vote for a certain party. Um, then you also saw the issue with uh, regionalism uh, to where the country was actually concerned with people from um, other parts of the region coming in to vote. So in Guatemala or in Nicaragua, they they pretty much were beefing up the regional, um, excuse me, the border security at that time because they were afraid they were trying to sneak in to vote because it was so historic and mm. they wanted FMLN to win. So when you hear that and, you, you know, when you kind of digest all that and go, wait a minute, can that happen in the United States? You're like, no, no there's no way. It's right. like more unthinkable. But then you say, wow, you can't take for granted what you have because look what in another right. country is totally different. Right. And we, we, we for every four years, you know, and even in local municipalities, mm-hmm. we vote, you know. Right. And nobody for the most part in this country, no one puts a gun to our head and says, you've got to vote this way. Right. right. Or we're not afraid that tomorrow our family's going to go missing because we because somebody figured out that we we you know voted right. one party or another right um so i think i think i agree that you know institutions matter and they're right. important and to our democracy and it sounds like what you're saying is in el salvador and probably even in some of these other countries which we'll Absolutely. talk to institutions are critical to like the basic things like having a an election go right. well the second thing that that Steve Walt talked about in his articles in terms of why America is so bad at spreading democracy um, is that he says, you know, violence leads to violence. You know, so if you I think many people would agree if someone comes busting in through your house with mm-hmm. an AK-47 or, you know, a machete or whatever, your response isn't going to be like, oh, sir or ma'am. Hi, have a seat. You know, you're probably going to respond violently. And if your kids are watching this thing take place, then your kids might remember that. And right. and, and when they're older, they may come after you or your your own kids. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's this he says that there's this idea that, you know, violence begets violence. And, and when we act militarily in certain places, um, you know, we're making things worse rather than better and you alluded to this a little bit as well when you talked about you know Afghanistan and how we didn't necessarily get it right mm-hmm. necessarily mm-hmm. so can you share you know what we what did we get right and what did we what could we improve upon would you say when it comes to military intervention in some of the places that we've been to in the Mil- Middle East well you can go back to um Retired General um, David Petraeus, um, when he had pretty much introduced the counterinsurgency, um, and what's doctrine, a counter? What's a counterinsurgency? That's pretty much trying to get instead of going into someone's house and knocking down their door and putting a gun in their face, saying, "Where is he? Where is this person?" It's more of a style of we're trying to win the hearts and minds of people by talking to them, interacting with them, so those people can give you access mm. to what what is causing the problem, kind of educate you on, it reminds me of street smarts. <laughs> You're trying to build on your street smarts or yeah. your local yeah, yeah. Uh, knowledge of what's going on. And by doing so is working with the people, mm. you know, and not, you know, being violent with them right. and, and, and forcing them to tell us what's going on. Right, right. So the counterinsurgency piece really, really worked and it helped us in Iraq over time. But prior to that, when we first went in, that we were just going in there, guns a blazing, Right. And, and, and you know, just to, to sort of um, make sure we paint a complete picture of this, you know, we were just coming on the heels of 9-11, right, mm-hmm. during uh, the 2001 initial invasion um, of, of, of Afghanistan. And so I think there was a lot of energy around, we've got to find bin Laden, we've got to... Mm-hmm you know, seek justice and and make sure that the lives of the many who we lost don't, you know, go out in vain. And, and so I feel like in the beginning, maybe I don't I don't want to say it was right, mm-hmm. but it, it, I could understand why we would go in, you know, with such um, force. Right. Right. Be- because we it had been a long time yes. since we had an attack. Yeah. Pearl Harbor. Um, Pearl Harbor, <laughs> right? I mm-hmm. mean, we had, a, well, I guess in New York in the 90s, right. we had the bombing um, uh, World Trade of, World, of the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. But this was this was like two buildings. We had, you know, the Pentagon mm-hmm. attacked. You know, there, there was a lot. Mm-hmm. So I can, un- in a way, understand the immediate reaction. Right. 
the, the last piece he mentions about, you know, why America isn't good at this whole democracy spreading thing is he says, um, you know, a foreign country usually doesn't know a lot about the local dynamic. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned some of this, you know, in, in other previous examples, uh, you know, there are a lot of politics mm-hmm. that go on. And how did you go about or how do the soldiers or the the people who are on the ground, how do you go about figuring out like what what is that dynamic like? Well, that's a very interesting question, because I would tell you in the Middle East, I, I started off in Kuwait and did some work in Jordan and went in Iraq. But um, we knew that after the Arab Spring that this uh, region was extremely um, fragile, especially politically. Um, the Arab Spring kind of was pretty much symbolic of political instability because there was a lot of leaders there that uh, didn't necessarily represent some of these democratic values. Uh, and, and as a result of that, people were marginalized politically, economically, and they were really frustrated. And, and some of these leaders were in there for like 50 plus years. So when it comes to spreading democracy, some of these leaders, especially someone like uh, Mubarak in Egypt, well, he was extremely complimentary for our foreign policy, especially when it came to Israel, uh, you know, the peace accords with them since 1979. We were extremely favorable for Mubarak. But internally when it came to the people they were not pleased Mm -hmm. and so when he was ousted uh you know the united states they weren't necessarily favorable about it but president obama said we will go with what the people wanted and some people here in the united states were frustrated about it but obama did that because he he wanted to be democratic about it like if the majority of people do not want mubarak there then we are not going with him so what you're seeing in iraq it's the same situation uh, prior to ISIS taking over a lot of key areas in in Iraq, uh, the Prime Minister Maliki was pretty much marginalizing the Sunni communities there. And, and it got so bad that by the time ISIS came in, they didn't really mind them coming in. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, yeah, we're, we don't like the, the uh, Baghdad. Just come right in. Maybe you can help us. And then when they realized they do not represent uh, Islam, they said, oh, no, we're not going to deal with them. Uh, the spread of democracy... Uh, can you know it, it's it's a definitely tricky situation it's something we want to achieve because when we have a democratic uh, system within a country it's easy for us United States to communicate with them because we can achieve more that's why you see in these uh, institutions international institutions like the UN the IMF the World Bank a lot of those countries are they claim democratic institutions so we have shared values with mm-hmm. them and so because of those shared values we can achieve more with them economically security right, right. so yes what is the long-term strategy for like bringing peace to the Middle East as we say like what what is the strategy here mm-hmm. and how has that changed? from administration to administration? Well, I'll start with the Obama administration. Um, and, and it kind of goes under the Trump administration too, but it's less comprehensive. Um, you know, both administrations want to see stabilization, right? And But the way they're doing about it is slightly different. Or no, there are some differences. What, um, what needs to be stabilized exactly? Uh, definitely the institutions and uh, rule of law, right? And uh, the political stability there, right? That needs to be stabilized, but it's very hard to achieve. And um, and especially looking through American lenses or the West lenses, when you have a country who's trying to stabilize, it can take years. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be, you know, hey, sending your military, okay, we could stabilize it within five months. It could take many years. It's going to take a, many years to stabilize Iraq. They're not mm-hmm. done, despite that they're, They've just liberated Mosul, which is the second largest city, and and uh, Daesh has pretty much controlled um, the uh, the city for like three years. So it's going to take some time. So um, you know the Obama administration, uh, when pretty much what they did was they in 2011, once we came out of there, which was Obama's um, it was Obama's uh, campaign promise. Well, evidently, when we came out, it started destabilizing because the security forces there couldn't handle mm. uh, the the security threats there, as well as there was a lot of political instability under the prime minister, Maliki. So then Obama went um, decided to go back in 2014 when ISIS pretty much took over a lot of key mm. areas um, in Iraq. And his main um, objective was to stabilize the security forces. And by us doing that th- through a coalition of 73 plus nations is to help train retrain them 
Um, retrain um, their own people. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, retrain their the Iraqi security forces as well as work it work with the Sunni tribal groups and the Peshmerga forces up in Erbil to kind of uh, rebuild their their military, their security forces, and try to get them to work together. Mm. And they did realize that over time they did not want Dash to run some of their areas. So they say, okay, we got to work together to get them out of there. So that was a good thing that a threat actually made them want to work together. So um, we spent a lot of time training them. And and while they were training, they're also fighting a fight. Mm. That's like you fighting a fight with a broken leg. (laughs) (laughs) That's tough. So I kind of understood like, Oh my God! There's sometimes they're not going to win back some of these counter offenses because they're they're trying to rebuild their right. military. Um, but the American people didn't see that. Like I remember one, um, I think in 2014 they lost Fallujah. No, yeah, 2015, and it was very sad because bad news um, actually sells. And by the time that hit D.C. Uh, or Washington. Everybody was like, oh, my God, Obama's strategy is just terrible. What's going on? You guys are making a mistake. But it, they didn't look at it in a bigger picture. They're, they're trying to win some of these areas back, but it's going to take some time. Mm-hmm. So our policy at the end of the day, as far as the reaction to it, it was just somewhat in, impatient. So moving forward into the Trump administration, they pretty much continued Obama's um um, uh, you know, uh, his strategy of trying to stabilize those security forces and win back some of those key areas. Um, moving forward, my assumption they want to continue to stabilize it, but it requires development work, meaning money that we can use for foreign that right. we that we give to countries to help build you know, infrastructure. This is non-military. Yes, non-military as well as diplomacy to help kind of provide that political Mm -hmm. consultation them on, you know, stabilizing uh, their, their central government. But you see right now we're cutting off a lot of that funding towards, you know, aid programs or United Nations as well as the uh, State Department to help achieve those objectives. So that's why I said it's somewhat not really comprehensive right now on how, how the Trump administration wants to move forward, but I think they're going to learn over time that no, we we're going to need them right now to <laughs> right, right. to rebuild this up because it becomes counterproductive if we're sending our troops to win these areas, but we don't know how to yeah. help rebuild it with right. the Iraqis. Right, we're not mm-hmm. it, we're not um, building a found we're not helping them build a foundation. Yes, right. We just send in troops. Yes, and. <laughs> We don't know what could happen because there's no infrastructure. There's no economic sort of support system. There's, you know, maybe an education system that's kind of in debacle. Right. So I and we talked about this even with Ambassador Brigitte about the different ways of engaging the world. The three D's, if the listeners remember, diplomacy, defense um, and development. And you got to use all three mm-hmm. you have to know how to use all three when where and how yes. to achieve your your goal um and you introduced a concept since you brought it up we're gonna we're gonna go there and talk about isis <laughs> yes and isol and mm-hmm. all of these ICs. and i don't know if uh you can give us just a high level understanding of what do they want first of all what does mm-hmm. isis stand for right and then second what what do they want well the um I will tell you, ISIS is a, a very interesting um, lookout of how 21st century threats work, uh, just in, in in the international system. Um, you know, ISIS kind of stems back to uh, what we call Wahhabism in in uh, Saudi Arabia, where you have Sunni extremism that just have a belief system of you know uh, traditional Islamic beliefs, right? And um, it's going back to the old school, old practices of of Sunni practices, and um, or excuse me, a belief system. And they pretty much looked at it like, okay, in order to do that, we have to establish a caliphate in Iraq and Syria, which is we own territory and those people within there will follow our practices. Okay. So that's exactly what it wants. So, you know, start off uh, in, in Saudi, which is well known. A lot of people don't know this. Um, their tactics are very uh, similar to Saudi was when it came to the beheading mm-hmm. and, and, you know, um, just the level of extremism. So um, many of those folks pretty much left out of Saudi Arabia, went into Syria, mm-hmm. built hubs. Right. And, and Syria was an excellent place to do it because it was destabilized after right. the Arab Spring. Bill Hubs there saw that the Sunni communities in Iraq 
were just losing faith in, in Baghdad and it just kind of spilled Spread in there mm-hmm. and worked with them. So that's how it kind of uh, uh, played out. You know, they moved out, went out of Saudi, went into these areas like Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, and definitely built a lot of hubs in Syria and just kind of spilled into Iraq. And, and now they're all the way in Afghanistan trying to stay relevant. So because they're losing territory, they're going to try to stay relevant as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So that that's a big deal. And then their messaging kind of uh, changed over time because one thing that was really different from them and al-Qaeda is that they were just attracting foreign fighters from everywhere. <laughs> You're like, oh my God, this girl, this young girl's joining ISIS. This. And because they became more and more influential and they were using social media mm. to attract them. You didn't really see that dynamic when it came to al-Qaeda. You know, at the amount of foreign fighters that were coming in to support them and they were going into Syria to join right. them and train and, and then, you know, just be in the front lines with them. So I thought that was uh, very interesting. So there was a strategic message or strategic communication effort that we had to work on to counter that. Right. Because it was really, really powerful. But now you see a decline in those amount of foreign fighters that want to come support them because they're losing territory. So they're primary. So the, the ISIS is, it's the Islamic state. And, yes. and they, they're they not a state though, right? They're not like what we think of like a state. They're not a, even a country. Mm-hmm. They're just um, people. They want to essentially spread their their view they see a, a, a version of islam that they believe is fit for them right and they want to spread that and they use opportunities or countries that are are destabilized that right. are vulnerable like iraq like yeah. syria etc mm-hmm. to really spread their agenda yes yes and establish that caliphate so they're in a bit they're in a bad business of propaganda right now because mazul and Al-Raqqa are part of that caliphate physically. The caliphate is their their state. Their their state, state, right. They lost Mosul, so that's part of the caliphate. So that's bad, you know, as well as as they're they're already lost thirty more than thirty percent of Syria. I mean, of Al Raqqa. So they're losing their footprint when it comes to establishing that caliphate. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the state well, now that's difficult to achieve to because achieve. they're losing it. Right, mm-hmm. right. So in the caliphate, again, I don't because this might be a new phrase for for some. The caliphate isn't necessarily a state like a, a country that we recognize. No, 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 it's not It's not all. that. It's <laughs> a, a state as in like a a, 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 a a governing structure. Yes. For for ISIS to operate yes. out of it. it Yes. And I will tell you, I think it was about uh, late 2015. There was a discussion at one time. Oh, my God. What happened? They actually established it. And there's a country. (laughs) Yes. And people are living there. And it's like, how do you work with that? But you have international organizations like the UN and, you know, uh, IMF, World Bank that do not recognize this country. Do we have to one day face that? You know, to work with the COVID, right. just, you know, you have to sometimes think on that level because it's something that we haven't seen before. Right. And and I want to, um, again, bring it back to this idea of democracy. Right. Mm-hmm. So th- these aren't entities at this point that are demonstrating um, tolerance, if you will, or no. hu- human rights um you know, uh, support for human rights and no. equality, like, as you mentioned. They're not here to have, like, free and fair, um, open elections. Right, right, right. So, that's a reason why America is so adamant about making sure that we stop ISIS from spreading because it is a, a threat to what we deem, and it seems like many others deem, as um, an opportunity to, to protect democracy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they talk against our 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 belief system and they really, really into promoting their practices, which is, is the complete opposite from ours. So Asha, we've talked a lot, a lot about, um, you know, why America mm-hmm. in, is in the Middle East and why democracy we feel is the, the right way forward for the, for the world. Bring this home to the United States um, a lot of people just don't know. They just see bombs going off, people getting beheaded, people getting kidnapped. We're sending people to war. I think we just heard last week, you know, that we're about to send like 5,000 more troops. Right. These are our, our neighbors, our brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles who we're sending over there, right? Um, why does any of this matter to us here in the United States? Good, good question. Um, I will 
address in, in so many different ways. But first and foremost, uh, you know, because I'm a soldier, this is very important to me. We are still sending soldiers there. Um, and regardless that it goes away, it started all the way back to the Bush administration, went to Obama and now into Trump. It looks like we're not pulling out Iraq. We're not pulling out Afghanistan. As you can see, we're we may go into a point where we're having a surge in Afghanistan. You know, I just had a buddy of mine who just left Afghanistan. So um, despite that, 1% of this country actually serves uh, in the U.S. military. We have to always remember that we have people still deploying there, and that affects um, us as well as uh, families that are, um, that are related to these soldiers. So that's very important. Two, we spend taxpayer money on this. You know, uh, right now with the new proposal, we're, we're increasing our defense budget to more than $645 billion. So, I mean, this we're spending a lot of money on this, and we're going to want to know what we're doing with this money. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. And also, the reason why it's so important what we're doing in the Middle East, because uh, what's very interesting in the 21st century, we're seeing how it impacts us at home with regards to asymmetric threats. Be mindful of, because ISIS is losing uh, in uh, Syria and Iraq, they're going to want to pursue asymmetric threats. Which and, are? Uh, Indirect in attacks, uh, blowing up um, themselves in, in soft target areas or in financial districts as a way to stay relevant. So we have to harden our, our defenses at home uh, because of the fact that they're losing momentum which is territories in, you know, in, in Iraq and Syria, they're going to want to be more desperate to attack us, especially soft targets. And we've seen that play out in Europe. Mm. And we've seen some of that play out in the United States. Uh, and Europe's our allies. I mean, we yes. have European allies like France and France. the UK, yes. and et cetera. And they've certainly experienced their, their share of right. attacks as well. Right. And they claim it, too, when, when it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw that in Manchester. Uh, UK, mm-hmm. we saw it in Brussels, mm-hmm. we saw it in Paris. Also, you've seen the situation with the refugee mm-hmm. uh, issue as far as the Syrian refugee issue. Um, we saw that there's a sense of resistance of letting them in. Um, that, I think, is a bad stance. If uh, if we have a really good vetting system, they should come in. But um, then again, you have to acknowledge that some Americans are uh, do fear that of letting them in, but we have to educate them on why it's very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then again... If we if there's stabilization in Syria and in Iraq, then they don't need, they don't to, need come to come over. over. Right. So you know, recently the administration had agreed upon to underscore the the importance of establishing um, security zones and stabilization zones so those people can stay in Syria because a lot of them don't want to come over here. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them are are are, st- are still in Lebanon and Jordan don't want to go west because they want to stay near home right. or they want to eventually go back. Right. Right. So, you know, trying to stabilize uh, Syria and Iraq is very important as far as the refugee flow because they will go right back and there's a lot of returnees or there's a lot of people that want to return. On an economic stance, you have the oil and gas prices issue. That's a very important because that impacts our decisions when it comes to security often at times. So as you can see, when it comes to uh, oil prices right now, uh, there's a big inflation going on in, in the Middle East. But at the same time, we're not really feeling it. But if that flips, mm-hmm. uh, we would feel an inflation where the prices will go up and everybody's going to be like, what's going right, on We're here? back to paying $5 a gallon again. Right, right, right. <laughs> but if we... Um, pursue um, renewable energy, we will be able to lessen our consumption towards, uh, you know, Middle East um, and um, be able to pursue our own efforts. So that's very important, too, as well as far as economic policy and uh, security policy as well um, in in the Middle East. Yeah, thanks Mm -hmm. thanks for wrapping that up so nicely for us. No Um, problem. And we are, by the time folks start hearing this, it'll probably be a couple of weeks out, but this week here, um, the president tweeted um, some changes in uh, some policies related to um, transgender military officials. Um, Right now, we don't have anything official. As of the recording of this show, we don't have anything official that's come from the White House, just a couple of tweets basically banning um, transgender um, military servicemen and women. Uh, Can you talk about that and what that means and um, just your overall feeling about the impact of that, of of that? Yes. Well, well, going back to the Obama administration, uh, the fortunate thing about it is that they came out with this uh, transgender uh, policy change, which is good. Uh, We've, we have uh, transgender soldiers serving, 
um, in the military. So they need to be recognized. And there's some that want to go into serving. Um, so it came at during the tail end. So that was the unfortunate part that it, it came during the tail end of the Obama administration and it's built into the Trump administration. So there was stuff that still need to be sorted out to figure out, like, what, what do we need to do more to accommodate them? Unfortunately, we found out on through a tweet that uh, they're no longer allowed. Right. Uh, it's not necessarily a, a, a official DOD directive on, OK, how do you remove them? DOD being the Department of Defense. Yes. Department of Defense. Yes. So right about now, it's like a somewhat of a pause because the commander in chief said it uh, where, you know, you have to pay attention to what he said. But there's nothing that came from the Department of Defense yet as far as removal or recruitment right. tactics to kind of not allow them to serve. So it's in a confusing moment of how to kind of implement this new policy that came out of uh, out of Twitter. Um, but I will say what uh, kind of concerns me is that those transgender soldiers that are in, especially the ones that are serving in uh, deployment areas or in combat zones, for them to find this out through Twitter is just pretty unfortunate. Um, you know, these soldiers have invested um, their lives to serve and you know this is not necessarily the best method right. to kind of inform that that you have to leave right. so that's definitely a concern or not just even in a combat zone there's some that have been in for many years and you know you have to give the uh downtrace commanders the time to kind of you know implement it you know so the best way of doing it is not necessarily this way um it's already a big issue within the military that you have a high suicide rate and you know you don't want any of this to kind of uh be more of a causation to create that especially those that are in active duty so you want to definitely try to check into them to see if they're okay wow that's a that's a lot that's a lot going on and i hope that we can as a nation figure out you know how to move forward on on this for our military service members and the families um, who are relying upon them so heavily um let's uh this is a lot of heavy news this is a lot of (laughs) you know there's a lot of uh heaviness around this topic and Mm. i want to make sure we end on a happy note on a positive note and usually the way that you know people feel good about themselves is music mm-hmm. and as our listeners know from the first episode I try to ask our I do ask our guests uh, for a song that makes them feel good and that they enjoy listening to and Asha tell us what your song was and why you picked it yes uh, I picked the Jackson 5 <laughs> enjoy yourself to the beat um, I really like this song because I think it's uh, symbolic of just enjoying yourself, um, enjoying your your job, uh, enjoying who you are, you know, despite the political issues going, your you know, your economic disadvantages. Just be here and be happy and, and try to work with each other. Um, so that's what I, I like to listen to this kind of music because right now, it's you know, through this political turmoil, we're going through a lot. But you want to definitely try to find a moment to sit back, relax and listen to a good song to keep yourself motivated. So that's why I picked this song. Well, I hope our listeners are dancing in their kitchens or doing a little like twerking in your car. I don't know, whatever it is you're doing. Um, Enjoy yourself. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this this episode. I certainly have. Asha, thank you so much for taking the time out to be here, for sharing your experiences so candidly, Mm -hmm. for trying to break down what is a very, very difficult topic. Um, And we we just like barely scratched the surface. (laughs) Like there were some things you said. I was like, I want to keep going, but um, we're going to have more conversations with more experts. And certainly, Asha, you're going to come back, I know. And we're going to break down some of this some more. So thank you again for coming. Thank you to our listeners and um, enjoy yourself. Thank you.